1: I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Duncan Lennox, the CEO and co founder of QStream. You know, sales has changed, and there's really no two ways about it. I mean, it has changed, and yet people are still largely being trained and educated. I mean, salespeople are being educated and trained and supported the way they've always been. You know, organizations still rely on infrequent classroom training and weekly sales meetings to serve in one on one meetings with managers to help improve the performance of their sales reps. And, yeah, you know, gosh, it just seems sort of out of place these days. So, you know, new tools are coming on the market that fundamentally, fundamentally address some of these shortcomings of traditional sales, what I call sales education. Not necessarily training, but education. And they use data to provide sales reps with real-time support, guidance, and insights to help boost their performance. And my guest today, Duncan Lennox, is going to talk more about this and tell us a little bit what Qstream does to support that. So, Duncan, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure.
2: Well, I guess I've spent most of the last 25 years building enterprise software that's used by large enterprises, typically in the learning and collaboration space. And so that's what led me ultimately to get involved with the, the folks at Harvard and, and start Qstream back in 2008.
1: So well, what was the, what was the missing piece that you saw? I mean, so you said, okay, we need to find a solution for this thing. What was that thing?
2: Yeah, well, you know, you touched on it a little bit in your introduction. Uh, it applies to sales, but it also applies more generally. You know, when we look at uh, the process by which we educate people, even the words we use, if you think about it, are a little bit unusual because we tend to call it training or maybe learning, depending on the context. But those are processes, not objectives or results. Uh, so I think even in the words we use, we're maybe not focusing on the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And you talked uh, again in the introduction a little bit about how sales organizations are typically doing it with sales meetings or you know, long e-learning courses or death by PowerPoint, these traditional ways of doing it. And the dirty little secret is that everybody knows it doesn't really work, but <laughs> nobody had a better way to do it. So gosh, we better just keep doing this until or unless we come up with something better.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's absolutely the case, right? So let's go back and talk a little bit about this. This um, you, know, you talked sort little of about the outcomes rather than the process. Because this is important for me, and I, I believe it's just a huge shortcoming within the sales industry as, as a whole. Is that, yeah, there's really this focus on training as opposed to creating salespeople who are educated about what they should be doing.
2: Right, absolutely. So you've got a couple of things going on. Uh, Firstly, you've got the broader issue of how do we actually... Uh, change behaviors of individuals. So in the context of salespeople, the reason we spend a lot of time and money training them or enabling them or whatever word we want to use is because there's a set of behaviors we want them to exhibit which we think can lead ultimately to successful sales outcomes. And by that I mean success both for the company, the vendor, but also for the customer or the client as well because it's very short-term focused if we are short-sighted. Obviously we don't focus on ultimately the customer success. But then also within the sales environment specifically, of course, the buying cycle has changed so much, particularly in the last 10 years. You look at some of the data that's out there saying that as much as 60 or 70 percent of the buying cycle now happens before the prospect or the client ever engages with the vendor. And of course, it's things like Google, where we can all do our own research online so easily. So the old days of a rep coming in and putting a data sheet under your nose or rattling off the top three or four features or benefits of their product, that just doesn't cut it anymore because I can find all that information myself faster than you can say it. Uh, so that that's changed the very nature of how buying and selling therefore works, and organizations are struggling with how do they re-educate, reorient their sales force around that ability to have value-added conversations.
1: Yeah, I mean the the fact is buying is much more self-service these days, and even in complex B two B sales, right? So uh, yeah, customers can go to websites and educate themselves, and it's it's interesting. You, know, you use the the number about the 60-70% of the way through their buying process. I know that's a very controversial number um, because there have been research reports done just in the last year that claim both that number as well as the opposite, that actually customers aren't that far through their buying process, at least in the business-to-business space. But I think that the bottom line is still the same, is that you're now dealing with an empowered customer, regardless of where they are in their buying process. When you first engage with them, given that access to information, they're empowered and educated in a way they never were before.
2: Absolutely. So even if it was, say, the inverse and it was only 30% of the way through the cycle, not 70, that still puts you at a significant disadvantage if your traditional way of selling is simply to rattle off your features and benefits and then wait for the order to roll in. So, you know, clearly today what, what buyers are looking for, and, you know, and we know this as buyers ourselves because we're all buyers in certain contexts, is you need to be able to, as a vendor, as a sales rep, show me that you can help take away some of my pain. So you've got to be able to demonstrate that number one, you understand what that pain is in the first place. And then number two, you can specifically talk to me about how your solution, product, or service, whatever it might be, can actually help with that. It's like, what's in it for me at the end of the day? Because if you're not going to make my life easier, you know, the door is the rectangular shaped thing in the wall. Don't let it hit you in the ass on the way out.
1: Yeah. Well, and actually, but it, to me, it works in sort of two dimensions. And this is where it came back to your point uh, that we talked about earlier about training versus education is that. That so much of what we try to do to change behavior takes place without context. Right? So yeah, customers may be more empowered than they were before, and they're still trying to achieve a certain objective through evaluating product and service or purchase. But parallel to that is they're also they're trying to get that job done more quickly these days, right? They're trying to do it without as much investment of their resources as it was as it took in the past, because Everybody acknowledges the customers are more busy. The buyers are wearing more hats. So, you know, part of that imperative of making changing the behaviors, I think, is you know setting the context for why it's important to change behaviors.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Everybody is being asked to do more with less, right? So, the and and a you know, logical consequence of that is you need to be able to come to the table in a conversation with me, showing me how you're going to help me do more with less. If I have to figure your solution out for myself then, you know, I'm going to go with the solution that helps me get there without, without having to put as much effort in. I mean, it's pretty simple. In, in one sense, really buying hasn't changed at all, right? So in one sense, what's happened is there's been a compression of the sales cycles, of the, you know, the, the amount of time that somebody is willing to put in evaluating the different vendors and selecting the right product. Uh, but at the end of the day... Uh, buying is still buying and selling is still selling at one level. But the I think in the past, we've gotten away with papering over a lot of these cracks. I mean, if you look at Forrester did a really interesting study, it's a couple of years ago now, where they went and they surveyed the buyers. And these were predominantly technology buyers, CIO types. And they asked them to rate uh, vendors, reps that had called on them over you know, the preceding six months or a year in a bunch of different categories. And they actually displayed the data as a scorecard so you could get an A through an F. And the only grade, the only uh, topic area that wasn't an F was product knowledge. So reps could come in and talk speeds and feeds till the cows come home. But when it came to issues like understands my industry, understands my business, the problems that I have, they were all Fs. So you're not coming in adding value uh, to the to the buyer in that context. You're making them work for it. You're making them figure out how they could take your solution and actually make their lives easier with it. So guess what? The vendors that are smart enough to come in and be able to actually demonstrate that value up front, they're the ones that are going to win the business.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I write about this extensively in, in my books, is that you know there's really imperative that every interaction you have with a buyer you have to have a plan to deliver something of value to them that's going to help them make forward progress in their buying process. You know, I call it move at least one step closer to making a decision, regardless how big or small that step is. Absolutely. And if, and if you're not, you know, people sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously, as they calculate a, an ROI on the time they invest in you. And so they're not going to give you more time. And there's been. Research done on this, a guy that won a Nobel Prize in part sort of studying this this decision making habit, uh, Herbert Simon said, Hey, you know, people make decisions about how to allocate their time based on the return they earn on that time. And so if you're a salesperson and you're not providing the prospect an ROI on the time they're investing in you, then yeah, I think- you're not getting any more time.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we see this all the time, even with our own clients that we're selling to, because like other organizations, we're, we, we have to sell our solution also. And at the end of the day, time is the most valuable and, and scarce resource that the client typically has. Uh, so if you're not, number one, respectful of that, then you're going to lose. And then number two, able to show how you can hopefully give them some of that time back uh, with your solution.
1: Exactly. Okay, so let's jump into QStream a little bit. So you state that on your website that you know you think reps sort of lack these three critical skills, you know, or at least a lot of reps do lack critical sort of skills and information in order to win business. So what are those skills and what are the information they're lacking?
2: Well I think it it touches on some of the things that we've just been talking about. It varies from industry to industry, of course, but at the end of the day what it boils down to is typically product knowledge is pretty good amongst reps but what they're often lacking is fluency around the industry the business problem the challenges that the client is specifically trying to address so they're not coming in able to actually speak to how the solution can you know address the specific pain points that are going on for that client right now again this is this is sales 101 to a large extent but i think there's a lot less tolerance for this now, amongst clients, for all the time and other constraint issues that we've just been talking about. I mean, uh, aside from that, there's also, of course, the classic issue of selling skills. Everybody isn't good at everything, right? So mm-hmm. we all have different strengths and weaknesses. It's influenced significantly by obviously our experience and so on as well. So, this is another big challenge we see where we see that within these large sales forces that we work with we're seeing changes not just in the buying cycle but obviously changes in the product mix as well like so, for example a very common area where we often work with our large clients is they've just acquired another organization and that might include a large sales force so for example working with a large pharma that's just acquired a business unit of a competitor Mm -hmm. and so gotten an additional thousand sales reps along with that now, those sales reps come with a very different set of skills, knowledge, and experience than the ones that are already in the acquiring organization. And there's a need to obviously realign all those sales reps. And some of it is different, obviously, product knowledge, a disease state, it might be in the pharma context as well. But a lot of it is also the different way that we sell, uh, You know, be it a particular methodology, whether it's challenger or whatever it might be. So there can be some fundamental selling skills issues as well that also have to be tackled.
1: So how does Qstream address those?
2: Well, the way we address it is that the way I often talk about the company is that we're science-based and data-driven. So we're trying to bring a level of scientific rigor and scalability to the process. So our origins are coming out of Harvard Medical School. So my co-founder, who's a professor at the medical school, has spent the last decade conducting clinical trials uh, into uh, how do you get people to retain skills and knowledge longer how do you change behaviors and he developed a methodology that's at the heart of qstream that's been clinically proven to do just that and we've more than twenty randomized control trials now that uh, have been peer reviewed and published and shown to do that so we've we've proven that with the technology we can extend retention we can change even ingrained behaviors and we can correlate that all the way through to better outcomes
1: so uh- so what's at the base of that? How do you how do you do that? How do you, you know? the core
2: the core of it really is understanding that uh, number one people forget things almost as soon as you start telling them. So immediately they start forgetting, and this is kind of informally known as the forgetting curve. And everybody intuitively understands this this idea that uh, you know if you attend a class or you you know watch a TED talk or whatever it might be, read a book, you immediately begin to forget what you read. Uh, but what surprises people often is just how quickly that actually happens. If you actually look at a plot of it, it looks like some kind of double black diamond ski slope. I mean, the knowledge starts to go off a cliff pretty much immediately. The metric we often use to kind of bring it home to people is that about 30 days after you acquired a piece of knowledge, most people have typically forgotten about 80% of it. Right. So that's a phenomenal amount of, of, of knowledge to be kind of trickling away. So. What we did was we, we we said, look, in the last 10 or 15 years in particular, there's been a lot of new research into neuroscience and how your brain actually works. And with the advent of technologies like fMRI, we can actually image a brain in real time and see what's going on. And so what Price did was begin to study both the psychology research, some of which goes back 100 years on this, and some of the neuroscience research, which is much newer, and apply that and develop a methodology. And it works very simply. Uh, So how Qstream works is uh, when you participate in a Qstream, which you can think of as a topic or a course in a more traditional sense, uh, firstly, it's all structured as a game. I'll talk about that maybe more in a moment. But you can think of a Qstream as being like a deck of cards, And let's say we're trying to do a new product introduction and we want to make sure our sales force understands the core messaging associated with our new product. Well, we'll assemble a Qstream of 15 cards in our deck. Each card is a question and answer and an explanation. And what happens is when the game starts, it usually starts for everybody at the same time. In our sales force, we'll deal everybody the first two cards off the top of the deck.
1: And they're getting this on their phone, mobile device.
2: What happens then is their phone or their iPad or their mobile device is going to buzz with the notification. And all we ask is that at some point during that day, they find three minutes to jump into the app and respond to the questions. And typically, it's a scenario-based question. So it's presenting you, for example, with a customer scenario, asking you what you'll do next. Typically, you're provided with uh, multiple uh, responses and you pick the one that you think is the correct response. And when you submit that, you immediately get to see which was the correct response, and then an explanation as to why. And this could be text and images, or it could involve video and audio and so forth as well. Typically, there'd be a couple of questions a day or every other day, and it should take you no more than three minutes to actually respond to it. But part of what is the the secret sauce of Qstream is, initially, we deal everybody the first two cards off the top of the deck, but as soon as people start responding to questions, the adaptive algorithm technology, which comes out of the Harvard research, starts shuffling everybody's deck individually based on a bunch of factors. But in simple terms, we look at how you responded to the question. So, for example, if you got the question wrong, we'll reinsert it nearer the top of the deck. So it's going to come around for you again sooner, maybe in a week or 10 days. If you got it right, we'll insert it nearer the bottom. So it might not come around again for a month. Typically then you'll demonstrate mastery of that topic by getting the question right twice in a row, at which point we set it aside. So your deck is narrowing in more and more onto the areas where you uniquely are struggling or having difficulties, even though we're all playing the game in which we compete and win points and we've leaderboard competitions and so forth as well. Uh, But it's adapting to each person individually.
1: Well, the answer is always yes or no. I mean, it seems like there's an opportunity perhaps, especially in sales, given that you know, it's 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 uh, you know it doesn't really lend itself to black and white situations. Oftentimes, that
2: absolutely do you yeah. do
1: you, you know as part of this, you crowdsource you know sort of the answers and saying, okay, well you know sixty percent of your peers said this and thirty said this, so hey, we think sixty is the way to go.
2: We actually do do that. We actually have a question type that is designed specifically around questions that don't have a right or wrong answer. But for a lot of the common scenarios, although they're very subtle, uh, people would, be, would say that there is a, a more correct answer or a better answer. It's not necessarily that the others are wrong. So it's typically not at all yes or no, exactly as you say. Let me give you an example. A typical kind of solution selling uh, kind of scenario might be uh, for a pharma rep, You actually finally managed to get an appointment uh, with the pediatrician that you've been trying to see for the last three months. When she sits down with you, she apologizes that she hasn't been able to meet with you, but she's actually coaching her kid's soccer team uh, on the weekends and it's taking a lot of her time. What do you say next? And you get a number of responses. You could say, look, I totally understand. I appreciate you taking the time. Let me tell you about some of our latest clinical trial data. Or do you say something like, I absolutely get it. I'm actually coaching my kids uh, softball team and it does take a lot of time, but it's very rewarding. How is your child's team doing? Now, a lot of solution selling people would say that's the better answer because it's an opportunity to build empathy and rapport with the the client.
1: And the way you said it made it sound like it wasn't, though.
2: (laughs) Well, and it's, again, the, the better questions actually can be very subtle. It's not that we're trying to trick you, but we're trying to get at a set of skills and knowledge here. And one of the things we actually do, though, is when you respond, we actually show you in aggregate how your peers responded as well. So if you picked the quote unquote less correct response, we show you, you know what, you picked this answer, which we don't consider to be the best answer, but 27% of your peers also picked it, uh, which turns out to be very important to motivation because we want you to not feel bad about it. We're not trying to test you here. The question is a memory hook. It's part of the methodology because there's a, there's a psychological effect called the testing effect that says if we actually ask you a question rather than just telling you a piece of information, you'll remember it better. And so that's why we use the question and answer format.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I like it. It's very, very cool. Very cool. Well, we're going to take a short break. Um, come back and we're going to talk about more about uh, Qstream. But before we go, I have a hypothetical scenario to pose to you that I ask of all my guests. So, um, And I'll take your answer after the break. So uh, you are been hired as a new sales manager at a company whose sales have stalled, and you're the sales leader, and senior management really is anxious for things to turn around in a hurry. So what two things could you do on your first week on the job that would have the biggest impact? So think about that, and we'll come back after the break with my guest, Duncan Lennox from Qstream. Attention, sales leaders. Would you like to give your sales team the tools to drive more quality connects scale their outreach, and spend more time selling? Well, you can with LiveHive. Get your ROI. Try it now at LiveHive.com forward slash ROI. That's LiveHive, L-I-V-E H-I-V-E dot com forward slash ROI. Alright, welcome back with my guest today, Duncan Lennox, CEO of Qstream. So, before the break, I posed a hypothetical scenario for you. You're a new sales manager, need to turn around sales quickly. What two things could you do in the first week on job as a new sales manager to have the biggest impact?
2: I think when I think about that question, firstly, I'm an engineer by background, so and I'm a data guy, and Qstream is a data-driven company, so mm-hmm. my first instinct is I'm looking for data. And i probably start out with informal data, sitting down and talking to my reps and finding out what they think is working and not working, because they're the folks that are out there at the coal face, you know, working with clients every day. But very much what we try to do at Qstream is take an approach where we're not trying to boil the ocean. We're not trying to come down from the mountain and enforce, you know, a methodology or a competency model across a sales organization. Because as soon as you do that, it falls apart when it meets real people. It's more of a bottom-up emergent strategy. How can we almost nibble away day-to-day Uh, at small problems that each individual rep is happening uh, and have that be a cumulative effect that drives sales overall for the organization so Mm -hmm. number one for me and that would be sit down with my reps and hear what they are hearing and what they think are the biggest problems number two would be get some data across our sales organization if we could about what's working for the reps that are being successful because one of the things we found is it's often counterintuitive one of the values of a big data solution is that oftentimes when you look at things that are actually Having the biggest impact, they're counterintuitive. They're not the things that your gut would tell you that they are, and that's why bringing data to bear uh, is so important in our view.
1: Got it. Okay, excellent. So, question then about QStream is, and is obviously the the customer needs to be able to create these questions, and I presume you help them, you know, formulate the questions and so on. But so once somebody agrees that you know, hey, they're going to use your system, so they have a bit of a content creation task ahead of them initially, right?
2: Well, it can work in a few different ways. You're certainly right that we provide a whole set of tools that are built into the product and a whole framework and methodology for thinking about how to write effective questions. And many of our clients are building a lot of the content themselves because it's very specific to what they do, their products, their methodologies, their processes. But we do also have a network of over 50 partners that can both build content for our clients but also have off the shelf content so for example we work with a number of the uh, sales methodology companies like CEB who uh, who make challenger and they have content ready to go in qstream format for organizations that have adopted their methodology whatever it might be
1: mhm but as you said before it's sort of really independent of methodology it seems like to me that seems like one of the real strengths of what you're doing
2: Absolutely. No, so some people might be challenger users, others might be more traditional solution selling and working with another partner of ours like Richardson, or they might be working with Miller-Hyman. Other folks have you know, adopted or grown their own methodology over time. So one of the things that's powerful about Qstream is it's very fast to produce and push content out. At the end of the day, if you can write a question and an answer and an explanation, then you can write a Qstream. So part of the power of it is we've really compressed the cycles of being able to generate Generate content and get it out to people. So we see clients using it not just for overall stuff like selling methodologies and product introductions, but reacting in real time to what's going on in the marketplace. I talked to a VP of sales of a tech company a few months ago who was talking about the fact that you know they have five or six competitors they typically come across, and the sales force is well-armed with how to respond to objections that relate to those competitors. And all of a sudden a large technology company came and bought one of the smaller competitors they rarely see, and overnight, that was the competitor they were being asked about in the field. So they were able to, within a couple of days, put together a few short questions on how to position against that product and push it out to the field, not only make sure that they got it, but then be able to watch the Qstream data to make sure that they understood it and could leverage it.
1: Now, is there any way then to... um Have sort of contextual questions you develop that get served based on sort of what the salesperson's progress is with specific deals and opportunities. You know, using, you know, maybe pulling out of the Salesforce data or something to help them say, okay, today, this is your challenge. These are the, you know, the people that you're going to be calling on. Maybe here are some really relevant questions to that.
2: Yeah, you know, we're doing more and more of that at the personalized level. But one of the things that we found is to have something that works at scale, it's got to be really easy for the folks running it. Mm-hmm. So building a lot of content that's highly tailored to reps and say the stage they're at and so forth, it can become a real challenge and bottleneck on the on the sales management side. Uh, so we found that there's huge value in being able to have everything be 100% automated. So with a Qstream, when you build the Qstream, typically, and typically you build it in advance before you launch the whole thing, although you don't technically have to do it that way, but typically it's all ready to go, then you push a button and everything is handled automatically by the Qstream system from that point on. Um, so it's highly scalable in that way. And as part of that, we've kept some of the adaptation stuff a little bit simpler. So taking it to the level of some of the things that you talked about, we've run a lot of experiments with with those things, and we continue to do so. We certainly have some interesting things coming down the road in 2016 around that area, but we found that the boil, you know, trying to do too much too fast, with the to be too clever with the technology, let me put it that way, mm-hmm. doesn't lead to the kind of outcomes that, that the client wants and needs. It can look really impressive and, and shiny when you demo it to somebody, but we need something that works at scale with these multi-thousand-person sales organizations. So we've typically found that putting a lot of energy in to make the process as simple as possible for the various stakeholders far outweighs any small incremental benefit we might get out
1: of trying to be too clever. So what are some of the outcomes that your customers are seeing implementing Qstream?
2: Well we'll typically sit down and work with the client on a particular project or, or overall use of Qstream and we'll look we'll sit down with them and actually discuss five-year and one-year organizational goals and then take that down to tactical issues and then translate that into sales metrics that they want to actually impact and use that to inform the Qstream editorial calendar, meaning the set of content that gets developed and pushed out, as well as other aspects of the of the platform. And we've been able to show that we can impact things like average quota performance, where at one client we were able to increase average quota performance 20% across the group that use Qstream. We've been able to increase gross margins. Uh, we've been able to reduce turnover in a sales force, which is a really interesting one uh, that often organizations don't focus on. If you can obviously, every organization knows that having to ramp a new Rep is very time-consuming and actually, obviously, has a lot of opportunity cost. So, if you can keep successful reps longer, uh, then that's a huge win. And we've been able to show we can we can reduce turnover as well. So, the metric varies depending on what, where the particular issues of an organization are. But, and those are some just some of the ones we've been able to impact.
1: So, if, uh, curious about the turnover. So, what was what was a particular Q stream or Q streams that dealt specifically with you know? Incentives or motivation, or you know, keeping people on board.
2: Yeah, I think it's it actually. I think had very little to do with the content per se. I think it touched on a few different factors. Uh, one is people find participating in Qstream as a rep energizing and fun, right? So it actually helps them get more engaged with their job and that in itself drives motivation overall. But I think a bigger factor that we saw in that particular one is, you know, the number one reason why people leave their jobs across all jobs is dissatisfaction with their manager. And so what we saw then is because of the way Qstream allows the manager to interact and be a more effective coach, that that created a better relationship between the rep and the sales manager, and that led uh, to the lower turnover.
1: Manager becoming a better coach because they now have insights into how the Rep is answering these particular questions and highlights perhaps sufficient or specific deficiencies then that they can address in their coaching.
2: Absolutely. And a specific feature, and it's a core a critical feature of Qstream that we do, is that we have this frontline manager dashboard where that sales manager could come in and see a very quick, easy to consume snapshot of how their team is doing overall. But within that, what we do is we surface what we call coaching opportunities. So we sift through all the data, and then we choose three specific actions that we recommend that the manager could take to assist their team. So it might come in and say, hey, you know what, Andy's doing great. Just send him a thumbs up to let him know he's doing great. Send him a big check. Exactly. Exactly. You know. So, and, and that turns out to be a you know powerful way for both manager and rep because for the manager it's t- it's being very respectful of their time as well. It's telling them here are some specific things you could go do right now. It'll only take a few minutes. For the rep, then they feel obviously that their manager is engaging with them, and typically because the manager is coming in with a with a specific issue that that is an issue for that rep, they're able to add value and leverage the experience they have um, to help coach them.
1: Excellent, excellent. I like it. Well, good. Well, we're going to move into the last segment of our show, uh, where I ask some rapid-fire questions, and you can give me one-word answers, or you can elaborate as you wish. Are you ready? Absolutely. So, what's the most powerful sales tool in your personal arsenal? Well,
2: I'd have to say QStream.
1: <laughs> what if it was a non? What about uh, you know, from a characteristic standpoint, not a not an actual tool itself? What about you? What's your more, most powerful sales attribute? Humor. Humor. Okay. You're Irish, I am. You're Irish, okay. It's good Irish humor, right? So, yeah. uh, name one tool you use for sales management that you can't live without.
2: I guess I would reluctantly say Salesforce.
1: <laughs> okay, um, and that's yeah. You know, people say that all the time, but it's it does it does help. So, what's your who's your sales role model?
2: That is a great question. Uh, I think. I really believe, perhaps naively, and perhaps because I come at sales from the point of view of being an engineer and not really thinking of myself as a salesperson, that I think that the best selling scenarios and the best outcomes really are win-wins for both the vendor and the client. And I know that sounds either trite or naive, but I think the best sales managers that I've worked with and the best sales reps that I've worked with, uh, including our VP of sales here at Qstream, are people that really do strive to understand the problem the customer is trying to solve, and not shoehorn our solution into that problem, but rather find a good match. And to me, the mark of a great sales rep in that scenario is somebody who's prepared to say, "You know what? We're not a good fit for what you're trying to do right now." Um, so, as opposed to try and shove our product down their throat. Mm-hmm. So there's been a number of. It's not anybody famous. Uh, it's more some of the best reps and sales managers I've been fortunate enough to work with over the last twenty five years.
1: Okay, good answer. So. What's one book that every salesperson should read?
2: Right now I'm really enjoying uh, Marco Mark book about sales acceleration. Um, mm-hmm. for me, I think That's still- really,
1: that's really a manager's book though.
2: It is. So, it
1: is. So it for is. what should every book should a salesperson read?
2: You know, again, maybe it's because I'm a startup technology guy, but I, I really love the you know, crossing the chasm, of course. It's mm-hmm. a classic now and it's really about building businesses. It's not fundamentally about being a salesperson, but I love, particularly within that, which I think is the best possible advice for for somebody actually doing selling, the concept of understanding the whole solution. That if you're not a whole solution to the customer from the customer's point of view, then you're going to lose. And so understanding what that means, it's, it's funny, because I'm an engineer, I'm a math guy, and sometimes it's easy to look at, say, a solution that we might have and think, you know what, that's a 95% solution for the customer, and think, well, that's only 5% away from being a 100% solution. But for the buyer, it's binary. You're either the solution or you're not. Um, so you've got to be very honest with yourself about whether you have the 100% whole solution for the customer.
1: Excellent. Okay. So, what's the first sales activity you do every day?
2: The first, I guess, traditional sales activity I do every day is is looking at Salesforce.com and looking at some of the daily reports that I get in my inbox every morning that shows uh, what we sold yesterday and, and how we're doing against our against our goals. That's just a, a way of uh, keeping a sense of urgency there that I mm-hmm. want to make sure everybody has, uh, you know, at all times. That. Uh, we're out there trying to solve real problems for real people but we also have to build a sustainable business in order to earn the right to keep doing that um, so we've got to be selling and goals have to matter and be and we have to be accountable to those goals so that's where i start my day every day aside from that the reason i hesitated a little bit before i answered it is because the, the, the broader thing that I think of in terms of selling is I'm always trying to soak up more information about what's going on in the marketplace, whether it's competitors, whether it's trends, whether it's problems that we're hearing back from customers and prospects, because I don't think you can ever have too much information about what's going on, and you've got to be questioning the the fundamental principles every day. I mean, are these things that we thought were true yesterday about what our customers' needs are, are they still true today? Because the market is so dynamic.
1: Good. Good answer. So, last question for you. What's the one question you get asked most frequently by your salespeople?
2: By my own salespeople, Mm -hmm. not Salespeople that we're selling to right, you think It could be either way. I think the uh, the you know it's interesting because I what I don't hear back from my sales force, which is traditionally something that you would expect to hear, is you know we need feature X in the product. If only we had feature Y, we could land this big customer or sell you know ten X what we're selling today. But we get a very consistent feedback from the marketplace and from the sales force that we've got a very comprehensive and compelling solution today. Uh, So I'm always trying to listen out for uh, the unusual things. You know, one of my favorite uh, little uh, stories is this whole idea that in science, the most interesting kind of response isn't, Eureka, I've got it. It's, hmm, that's odd. (laughs) Because that's where we find the threads that we can pull on. And, you know, that's very much the way we've approached what we do with Qstream. We approach a very traditional problem in a very non-traditional way. And that's what I love. I love to find non-traditional approaches to problems because that's how you do something unique that maybe hasn't been done before.
1: Excellent. So one last question. I I meant to ask this earlier. I really didn't get into it. So really who's sort of the ideal customer profile for you? I mean, it seems like you work primarily with larger enterprises, larger sales teams, but it seems like this would really be of value even to smaller sales teams.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it's more an issue for where we are as an organization. We do typically work with sales organizations in the life sciences industry that have at least a 1,000 sales reps. For example, many of our clients have 5, 10, 20,000 sales reps. But this year, we've also been working in the financial services and technology industries. And there, we see more mid-tier companies where it might be 3 or 4 or 500 reps, and we work with them. We think it scales all the way down to sales teams. We use it ourselves with our sales team, which is much smaller. For us, it's more a resource issue today. We're going after the larger sales organizations, although we have many partners that take the technology and do sell it into often smaller organizations. And over time, we'll certainly do more of that because it's certainly applicable um, in small and medium-sized businesses, we believe, as well.
1: Yeah, I would think the challenge is maybe even more profound in, in organizations that have typically less resources or fewer resources to do even conventional training is you know, part of what I, I want to have happen and part of my passion about sales training is, yeah, let's, let's skip that conventional classroom training as much as we can and let's, move, to, let's move into mechanisms that are way more effective and as you said, reinforcing of the behaviors that you want to have change.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we certainly see clients will traditionally, as they mature with QStream, they'll start out traditionally maybe reinforcing in the field something that they've, they've done in the classroom, be it virtual or, or, or physical. But over time, starting to realize, you know what, we can actually replace significantly chunks, uh, chunks of how we've done things traditionally with the QStream formula, which is much more liked by the sales force anyway, and then has the, you know, the science obviously behind it. So we certainly see it going more and more that way. And I think you're right, smaller organizations obviously have less resources. Um, So I think we could be a powerful tool. I'm I'm really looking forward as we continue to expand our markets in the coming years, being able to work with some of those more medium and and smaller size organizations where perhaps we can, relatively speaking, have an even bigger impact uh, than we can in the large organizations.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Good. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. My guest has been Duncan Lennox, CEO of QStream. Duncan, how can people learn more about QStream?
2: Well, absolutely. Please go to QStream.com. Uh, we're at at QStream on Twitter or uh, like us on Facebook at QStream.
1: Okay. Very good. And all those links will be on the website uh, for this uh, particular episode's uh, show notes page. So, friends, remember make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And Subscribing to this podcast is a great way to do that because you want to make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with our business experts like today's guest, Duncan Lennox, who share their expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us, and until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.
0: Hey, sales strategists! At revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence.